full of socio-political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to Season 2, Episode 18 of YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted, independent majority who like their politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share it with one friend you think might like it too. This movement grows by word of mouth. Now, for the past two episodes, we've been covering the Supreme Court. And while both guests differed on their recommended reforms... They agreed on the fact that today's hyperpartisan political environment has leaked its way into this branch of government. And so I thought it fair to ask, how does this compare to the court in the most polarized political climate ever experienced in the United States? That being the Civil War. And to help shed some light, I invited Dr. Rachel Sheldon of Penn State an expert in American politics in the 19th century who penned an op-ed in the Washington Post comparing the partisanship of today's court to that of the Civil War era. So, how partisan was the court back then? Abraham Lincoln appointed his campaign manager to the position of associate justice, and it gets so much worse. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. We may hear me get a little gravelly voiced or coughed. We may hear your landscaper. And if your dog barks, we'll know FedEx is there. So other than that, listener, we should be fairly disaster free. So I brought you on here because I've talked with a lot of folks about the state of the court and about potential reforms. And really what I was hoping to get out of this is some historical context on the role of the court. Because one thing I've learned as I've had these conversations is that in a lot of ways, the court, which we now view as sort of these high priests of all things constitutional, were really designed to be more or less another political body that just moved or changed opinion a lot slower. And and so I'm really interested in getting your take on, on what the views of the Supreme Court were back during the Civil War era when things were probably the most contentious they've been in American politics. And also by that, get an idea as to how we can use that as a lens to look at the court today. So, you know, maybe to start things off, can you tell me a little bit about how Americans viewed the Supreme Court in the Civil War era? Yeah, so we are sort of obsessed with the idea today that the court has the final authority on the Constitution. And that just really wasn't the case in the 19th century. Certainly, there were some people who wanted the court to have the final opinion. But in general, there was much more acceptance of judicial review. So the court being able to review constitutionality in a single case and less in judicial supremacy, which is the ultimate authority over the Constitution residing in the Supreme Court. So Folks understand the court to be a political and partisan body, although I want to qualify that by saying that that does not mean that they expect all judicial opinions to be motivated by partisan 
ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is an expectation that judges are independent and people want to think that the judges are independent, but their conception of the justice's role in politics is very different. So for example, all justices would have been identified by their political party. It was not unusual for people to talk about you know, Stephen Field, who was one of Lincoln's uh, Supreme Court nominees, he was very much considered a Democrat. Yeah. Nobody would have been confused by that, right? Roger Taney, also a Democrat. Nobody would have been confused by that. And the justices referred to themselves that way. Uh, the question was just, how did that relate to the way that they went about their judicial business? Another important element of this is that the court just doesn't see as many cases come before them. They're required to actually review. There's no certiorari until the end of the 19th century, but they just don't get that many cases. Their, their jurisdiction doesn't extend that far. They get more starting in the 1850s and 1860s, which requires a lot more reorganization. But the federal courts on the lower level are getting most of those cases. So the federal district courts and the federal circuit courts. This is something that's really important about the 19th century that I think most people don't know, which is that Supreme Court justices had to ride circuit in the 19th century. And what that meant was there were no separate circuit judges. So you had circuit courts that were made up of federal district judges and members of the Supreme Court. So, for example, in Ohio, you would have a federal court meeting with the district judge for the District of Ohio and a Supreme Court justice in the 1840s and 50s, that justice was John McClain. And they would get together and they would they would hold circuit court once a year or twice a year, depending upon when we're talking. Yeah. So what that means is that the Supreme Court is actually much more invested and involved with the states and with the regions that they come from. So People thought about the Supreme Court as more of a representative body than we do today. Justices were drawn from different regions of the country and politicians and sort of the general public talked about judges as representative of their areas. So the fact that they're going around the country and actually engaging with people on the ground is very different from today. You know, the, the two interesting things about what you said Number one was the idea that your average American did not view the Supreme Court as the final arbiter of what was constitutional and what wasn't, but was rather a check or a balance against the judiciary and the presidency, which makes a lot more sense. The other interesting thing you talked about was riding circuit, because in the last episode, the, the person I was speaking with actually recommended having Supreme Court justices ride circuit as a potential reform to just get them more in touch with what was going on. One question for you, this is superficial, but I'm just very curious about this. So in theory, then, you could potentially have a case that was put before a Supreme Court justice in a circuit court, and then have it end up in front of that same justice at a later date, correct? It, even worse, right? You would, If yeah. it started in the federal district court, which it didn't always, you know, some the circuit courts also operated as trial courts, but it could start in the federal district court, be seen by the federal district judge there, then go to the circuit court, be seen by that same federal district judge who is operating as a circuit judge, mm -hmm. along with the member of the Supreme Court, and then go up to the Supreme Court and be seen by the Supreme Court justice who had been sitting on okay, the circuit. Right. So, so, you know, it's a, it's a totally different system, but the, nobody was worried about that. 
I mean, the justices didn't really like circuit riding because it was very taxing. Trial courts are way more onerous than appeals courts. Mm -hmm. So that was a really big part of their sort of experience. But also, like, imagine spending three quarters of the year riding around literally on horseback in a lot of cases, going from place to place. It was very expensive. And so, you know, they're going to all of these different circuit um, courts and they're staying in hotels. And who are they staying in hotels with? The lawyers who are also trying cases on circuit, who are traveling around riding circuit to try cases. Uh, So there's this sort of community of lawyers and judges that's just sort of hanging out together. They don't have enough money. They're often sharing hotel rooms or sharing boarding house rooms. They're eating together. They're spending all this time together. It's a totally different experience. I I don't know about the idea of returning. Certainly the justices today would not be real thrilled with the idea. But in in general, I mean, it, it was sort of considered important that the justices have a relationship to the people. And this is sort of a widely held belief. It's not it's not particularly unique to any party or any group of people. It sounds kind of like being in the circus in a way, <laughs> you know, like you're going from town to town, you're kind of broke, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds a little fun. The other thing I'm, I'm picking up on is as you're talking, and this is something I picked up on in that article you wrote for, for the Washington Post as well, is it didn't seem like the Americans were scared of the court being partisan. That was kind of the expectation. It seemed like they were more afraid of the court gaining too much power. That's exactly right. Uh, There was a sense that partisanship was inevitable, in part because justices came from the political branches, usually. Uh, The majority of, of nominations to the Supreme Court come from people who are serving in the cabinet or serving in Congress or serving as governors of states. So there's no sense that those folks are going to just leave their partisan allegiances at the door when they become justices. And they don't. I mean, John Katrin, who becomes a justice in the 1840s, serves essentially as a campaign manager for three different presidents while Mm -hmm. he's on the Supreme Court. You have multiple justices running for president while they're sitting on the Supreme Court. Lincoln nominated five justices to the Supreme Court. Four of them ran for president while they were on the court. That's so it, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a it's a different kind of setup. When yeah. you think about justices not as sort of forever serving high judicial body, but <laughs> instead of, of, you know, of the people in a lot of ways, right, because they're serving in these political positions before and some after. So one of Lincoln's appointments to the Supreme Court, David Davis, who was his longtime pal from Illinois, David Davis was a was an Illinois circuit judge and Lincoln rode circuit in the state courts and tried many cases in front of Davis. And actually, in fact, Davis would sometimes be absent from court and Lincoln would step in as the judge in cases, which is a totally wild, maybe separate conversation. But so so Lincoln and Davis had been pals for a long time. Davis serving as a circuit judge in Illinois runs Lincoln's 1860 presidential campaign. He is the manager of the campaign. Lincoln later appoints him to the Supreme Court. This is great for Lincoln. He's got his pal in the Supreme Court. Right. David later runs for president. He is appointed to the Supreme Court by a Republican who he is very close with, but then later switches to the Democratic Party. He eventually resigns his seat to become a senator from Illinois. And none of this is weird. 
I mean, this is all very expected and understood uh, to be part of the judicial process. I mean, there were some people who wanted to see justices have more power and wanted to see them be less political and more independent, but it was a minority view. You don't get a lot of complaining about these justices doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. This is kind of like, it's almost like if Karl Rove or Steve Bannon got a Supreme Court appointment for their work during the campaign effectively, correct? Yeah. I mean, Roger Taney becomes chief justice of the Supreme Court because he had been a loyal partisan to Andrew Jackson. Uh, Jackson actually tries to put him on the court as an associate judge and the Senate doesn't act on it. So he's not he does not get uh, confirmed for that nomination. And and later, I think maybe the Whigs were sad that he then became the chief justice. Maybe we should all feel badly about that. But yeah, so, you know, I think In general, there's an understanding that the court is almost like a political position. And you see a lot of judges in this period go back and forth from the judiciary to political branches. So another example of that would be Levi Woodbury, who comes on the court in the 1840s, and he's a loyal Jackson guy. He had served in the state Supreme Court, and he had served in state political positions, and he had served in federal political positions. It's just very common. They're going back and forth. The number of people who are called judge as their name when they are serving in Congress is very large. (laughs) That is so interesting. And so this is another thing I actually want to bring up as well, because I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by what I can only describe as the total lack of decorum in terms of nominating Supreme Court justices, because now... (laughs) We tend to couch it today as sort of this very solemn process where it is our constitutional duty to nominate people who will accurately interpret what the founding fathers meant when they wrote the Constitution way back when. But really, back then, they're just kind of like, well, this guy, you know, handed out flyers for me during the last campaign, so I'm going to put him on. So, but the other thing that's interesting, too, that I didn't know, and a lot of people I don't think know, is that Lincoln actually expanded the court, correct? Well, he certainly is interested in the possibility. Congress, of course, is yeah. is in charge of the expansion. So, yes, yeah. they expand the court from 9 to 10 in 1863. That's really about trying to account for what's going on in California and Oregon, which had been separate from um, the federal judicial system. And so they add a circuit in California and Oregon and expand the court to 10 because there's an expectation that justices are writing circuit and that they Mm. are representative. There's actually a really important uh, Judiciary Act that happens in 1862 where they reorganize the courts because one of the reasons why we get, for example, Dred Scott is that Mm -hmm. the circuits had been organized to give preference to Southerners, right? So you have five Southern circuits and four Northern circuits. And that's how you end up with a judiciary that is dominated by Southerners. So in 1862, they change the complexion of the circuits to make it more North heavy. And then in 1863, they add this additional circuit. And and the idea is essentially there's the problem of actually how much is coming before the courts, the federal circuit courts Mm -hmm. in particular, and how much they need the kind of judicial oversight in those places. So they're reorganizing to achieve administrative balance. 
but also for politics. You know, the the fascinating part about the 19th century that I think is also very foreign to us in the in the 21st century is just sort of how partisanship worked. We assume a two-party system. That is not what people assumed. In the 19th century, parties died. Parties hmm. were disbanded, and that yeah. was expected. You know, you think about the Whig Party only existed for about mm, 10 to 14 years, right? So when the Republicans get into power, their entire platform for Lincoln's election, right, is to restrict slavery in the territories. And there is a sense among many people that the Republican Party is going to die. Natural order of things. A lot of people think the Democratic Party is going to die also. So in Lincoln's time as president, in his early years as president, he starts to think about the future of his partisan organization. And what happens is he starts organizing a new party called the Union Party. In 1864, he did not run as a Republican. He ran a Union Party candidate. And so he's thinking about a new organization. So what does he do in 1863? He nominates... Stephen Field of California to the Supreme Court. Stephen Field, known Democrat. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows he's a Democrat. Why does Lincoln do this? Well, if you understand partisanship differently to be in flux, it's pretty clear why Lincoln doesn't. Because there's a good sense that Stephen Field would be representative of the Union Party ideas. And this is why you end up with Andrew Johnson on the ticket in 1864. He's a unionist. Yeah. They're trying to put together a union party. So it, you know, when we think about partisanship as a two-way, you know, two people fighting it out for the presidency, it's just not the case in the 19th century. There are almost no elections featuring two candidates in the 19th century. They almost all feature three or four candidates. It's almost like Game of Thrones, where you don't know who your allies are going to be at any one time and who your enemies are going to be. So you kind of work together against a common enemy and then you break up. And then is that is that kind of the scenario politically? Well, yeah, it's very issue oriented in a lot of cases. Right. So the Republican Party, very issue oriented. Mm -hmm. The Democratic Party is a little trickier because they're around for a long time. But the Republican Party of the 1850s looks very different from the Republican Party of the 1870s. They they change a lot. One thing that really motivated people in this period is that they were afraid that the union would collapse. And so they thought the stakes of partisanship were really high. And when they are advocating for their partisan ideas, they expect that this is a central, important piece of the puzzle for how to keep the union together. Other parties will then co-opt their issues or maybe the issue goes away. And so then they no longer need their party. The party doesn't serve the purpose of of what it was for anymore. And then they can move on to other parties. It just seems like things were so fluid. And and also that in a lot of ways, that seemed to be the way people wanted it. Because it, it does, the thing I pick up again and again as I dig more into the era, people's fear was power, excessive and static power. And really, the idea was things should be fluid and things should change. I think people were definitely afraid of power. Yeah. They were afraid of uh, 
it depended on when you were talking. I mean, people were terrified of Andrew Jackson because they thought he had too much power. That was part of the impetus behind the Whig Party. And there was great worry about the judiciary. I mean, there were all kinds of efforts to Mm -hmm. restrict the judiciary on on the federal level and also on the state level in the period before the Civil War. So many attempts. There was a lot of worry about that. There was some worry about Congress. Certainly, Andrew Johnson rails against Congress Mm -hmm. in the Reconstruction period. (laughs) Yeah. So there's all of that. But one other thing to remember is that state governments were far more important to people uh, in a lot of ways in the 19th century. The states were the center of governance. Yeah. So, you know, the federal government, it was a concern. Certainly people turned out for presidential elections. You got in the 70 percent of eligible voters. But the states are where it was at, where things mattered. I want to get to that in a second, because I think there's some other things that come down the line that can speak to that. You did mention Dred Scott. You actually have a, let's call it a contrarian or a counterintuitive view of that decision. And I'm I'm really interested in understanding your interpretation of it, because it's obviously been decried as one of the worst Supreme Court rulings of all time. But but it seems to me like in, in some respects, you feel that maybe they were, were ruling correctly, even though in a morally abhorrent way by today's standards. Well, some of this depends on your view of what the court is and what the court does. And if you see the court as fundamentally a reflection of the politics of the period, then Dred Scott is very much in line with the governing coalition that existed in Washington in the 1850s, who are controlling the presidency and you have an overwhelming number of Democrats in Congress. And the Democratic Party was in favor of most of the pieces of Dred Scott, certainly the pieces about citizenship. Mm-hmm. Many Republicans even even believe that. Very briefly, could you explain what the Dred Scott case was to the folks who are listening who may not know? Sure. Dred Scott was an enslaved man in Missouri, and he had been brought to the federal territories that were free. And he sued for his freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the case goes through the, the Missouri courts, and then um, his owner dies and is replaced by a New Yorker. And mm-hmm. so S- Scott sues in the federal courts under diversity of citizenship to suggest mm-hmm. that if I'm suing a New Yorker, that case can't go to a state court. It has to go to a federal court. Mm-hmm. So he sues under diversity of citizenship. And this is really important because when he gets uh, to the Supreme Court, what Tawney says in his majority opinion or the opinion of the court. So again, this is not a case in which it's totally clear, but in in a sense, you know, Tawney's is the opinion of the court. And he says two things. First, that Dred Scott can't sue under diversity of citizenship because he can't be a citizen. Enslaved people can't be citizens. And if you are a Black person of any background, as long as it has roots in the history Mm -hmm. of slavery, you can't be a citizen. And then he also rules that the Missouri Compromise, which was a compromise in 1820, that created a line across the middle of the country Mm -hmm. that said territories above the line are going to be free and these territories below the line are going to be for slavery. He says that's unconstitutional because in the Fifth Amendment, slavers should be able to bring their quote unquote property anywhere. And he counts enslaved people as property. 
So what happens in that circumstance is that Tani has made this determination about Dred Scott not being able to sue because supposedly he's not a citizen. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people, Abraham Lincoln included and other, other Republicans say, well, this whole thing about the Missouri Compromise is obiter dictum. It is not relevant to the decision in Dred Scott, because it really just should have been a case of Tani saying, I'm rejecting this case entirely. So in that case, you know, the politics are already there. Mm -hmm. And and one of the reasons several uh, historians have argued that Tani makes this determination about the Missouri Compromise is that the Republican Party's entire platform is trying to prevent slavery from growing in the territories. The Republican Party is a sectional party, right? It's mostly anti-South. And so that this might help resolve the problem of the sectional party. And the court had been begged by many Democrats to to make a determination about Dred Scott. So in reaction to Dred Scott, Mm -hmm. Lincoln first calls it a conspiracy, that there is a conspiracy to perpetuate slavery in the United States among James Buchanan, who's the president when, when the court issues Dred Scott. Franklin Pierce, the previous president, Stephen Douglas, Lincoln's rival for the Illinois Senate, and Roger Taney. So he says there's a conspiracy. They're all trying to perpetuate slavery. Mm-hmm. I might argue that that's not totally crazy. Yeah. If, if Stephen Douglas and James Buchanan didn't hate each other, then yeah. it maybe was a possibility. But so Lincoln says that. But then he also says, you know, the Democrats won the last election. It's a reflection of their political coalition. And when Republicans have the federal government in their hold, they will nominate Republican judges or Northern judges. And so, you know, there's an understanding of the politics of it that we sort of turn our nose up at today, but at least is sort of reflective of the times. 40% folks, that's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. If we interpret Dred Scott through the eyes of somebody living through the era, their expectation 
was that the Supreme Court would be ruling in a partisan way and would be ruling in a way that reflects the view of the party that they're members of, rather than that they would be kind of looking into the text of the Constitution to figure out, does this comport with what's written down? Well, I mean, it's it's a little more complicated than that, right? And and this is always the difficulty in talking about partisanship in the courts. It's not just a matter of partisan decision making. It's mm-hmm. a matter of these people were nominated to the court with a certain set of political opinions. Mm-hmm. Not all of them conform necessarily to the Democratic Party, but their opinions when they were nominated to the court were very clearly pro-slavery. And so it's not surprising that they are reflective, that their decision is reflective of of their nomination and of the governing coalition. Uh, Certainly these these men believed that they were acting constitutionally and within the bounds of the constitution. I would say that about justices today. It's it's not sort sort of blind partisanship they're nominated for their partisan views. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So it, you know, it's very much reflective of that. There's a wonderful book written by Mark Graber, a political scientist at the um, University of Maryland called Dred Scott and the Problem of Constitutional Evil. And one of the things that he argues in that book is that there is sort of compromise with slavery built into the constitution. And so Dred Scott is reflective of that. And and what we as Americans really don't like is to question the Constitution as a document, right? Like as something that might not be perfect. That's the one thing we can all agree on, right? That the Constitution is this sort of sacred document. But the Constitution built this form of compromise over slavery into American political governance. And Dred Scott is very much reflective of that. And maybe that means that our Constitution mm-hmm. is not perfect and wasn't perfect then. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's the thinking I would put to it, you know, that, yeah. that this is a more complicated situation. It's interesting because one of the things I heard in the first episode that I did on this was the idea of the Supreme Court being more of a, a continuation of the conversation than anything else. And it seems like that is more in line with the quote unquote true originalist view. I mean, right now, for the most part, Supreme Court nominations are a litmus test over Roe v. Wade. I can't help but think in that environment, you would expect that justices would be very vocal about their opinions and that senators would be very vocal about voting down their nomination because their opinion conflicts. And it would be very logical that they would go in and rule against Roe v. Wade because that's what they said they were going to do during the nomination process. So, yeah, or for or against, I should say. Let me just say one other thing about that, that I think is important, which is that there were no hearings for justices until the 20th century. So oh, really? it's not like, yeah, there are no hearings. It's not like they're coming before Congress and saying, here are all my, you know, yeah. <laughs> particularly important viewpoints. They're known. They're well known. And let's be real here. There's not a senator who has not been thoroughly briefed on everything a justice coming before them has done. What's different now, right, is there is a belief that justices are supposed to be nonpartisan. That's really a creation of the end of the 19th century. It's a it's a sort of feature of growing judicial power. Yeah. The idea that if judges are more powerful, then they need to be nonpartisan. Are they nonpartisan? Probably not. But at least that is the perception, right? So Supreme Court 
published opinion polls match up very well with whether people believe the court is apolitical. That's just like a creation of the 20th century. It didn't exist in the 19th century. There was expectation that there would be politics involved in who these people were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that was another thing I, I learned from digging into your work, too, is that a lot of this call for nonpartisanship was really more of a response to growing judicial power. And so what happened after the Civil War that ultimately gave the judiciary more power? Under the Constitution, Congress controls what the features of the federal judiciary are, right? Mm-hmm. There's just one Supreme Court and then whatever courts Congress wants to make. Yeah. So in 1869, they start to create more judges that are supposed to serve as appeals court judges to help relieve the justices of circuit riding. In 1891, then the Everts Act actually gets rid supposedly gets rid of circuit riding. The justices stop riding circuit essentially then. And then in the early 20th century, they stop entirely. Mm-hmm. So what they start to do is, you know, centralize power of the court by, you know, creating these lower federal courts mm-hmm. and also by expanding their jurisdiction. In the early 20th century, you start to get um, more power of the court over its docket, more power over the federal courts, not controlled by the Supreme Court. It's not like they had oversight over them. In the 19th century, there was actually a split between the attorney general's office and the treasury secretary Mm -hmm. over who had control of the lower federal judiciary. And in the 20th century, they start to centralize that power. And this is a project that is, I think, both on the minds of the justices themselves. They want to carve out more power for themselves. I'm working on a book right now that is about this particular subject. The the idea is that the justices see that they have less control over the politics of what's going on in the states. Mm -hmm. It's harder to have influence. And so they're interested in more power on the court itself. And it's also their allies in Congress who are interested in the court getting more power. It's easier for the court to weigh in on things in a lot of cases, right? Like the story of the Supreme Court getting more power and ruling in many of these cases is the story of Congress not wanting to deal with the constitutionality of a law or the construction of a law wanting to just pass that off to the Supreme Court so that they don't have to be on the hook for it (laughs) with their constituents. It's not just the court saying, I want this, or Congress saying, I want this. They're doing it together. Uh, And then in the 20th century, the court just starts to assume this apolitical posture, even though I'm not sure it's really reflective of what's going on behind the scenes. And one big thing that happens there is they get their own building. You know, the Supreme Court was in the Capitol building, until the early 20th century. They were in the basement of the Capitol and then they were in the old Senate chamber. Oh. So that tells you a little bit about what people thought about the court then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to pay your own hotel. You got to be away from home six months a year. And oh yeah, your office is in the basement. Yeah, totally. Wonderful. So I'm super interested in in this idea that not just with the Supreme Court, but I think in angst over the role of the federal government overall. Because it does seem, especially as we get into the Depression, and I didn't invite you here to talk about the Depression, so you don't have to comment on it, but (laughs) it does seem as if that's really the point where a lot of the power that was once held by the states is sort of ceded over to the federal government, and where a lot of the debates over politics really reside at the national level. And it does seem as if a lot of this angst is created over a very willing 
seeding of power by voters, by the states, by Congress to an extent. I mean, I mean, in a lot of cases now, people talk about an imperial presidency as a result of Congress not wanting to do their job. And it, it seems like almost this is a voluntary secession of power that's resulted in different chambers of government being way more powerful and way more involved than the founders originally intended. Is that a justifiable interpretation or no? I mean, it's a little hard to say. When we talk about the founders, like the, the delegates to the Philadelphia Convention, they had different ideas about the role of the federal government. We're all obsessed with James Madison, but James Wilson had different kinds of ideas about the role of the federal government, for example. Yeah. So, so I think to some degree, of course, the federal government has expanded enormously in the 20th century and the early 21st century. I'm not sure that thinking about it from the perspective of the framers is useful just because we're we're a totally different society in the 20th century. Sure. And fair point. Following the Civil War, there is a, an enormous expansion of federal bureaucracy, which has to happen as a result of all kinds of changes in the nation. And there had been bureaucracy before. Of course, you have tons of postal agents that are all around the country. I mean, that was the most common meeting of the federal presence in your life. But yeah, I mean, I think it, it has a lot to do with sort of adjusting to the the norms of the 20th century. When we think about it from the perspective of originalism, we are struggling to, to think about what makes sense in sort of our current moment. Yeah. And the framers themselves were totally divided. And then if, if you want to go into originalism from the perspective of the public, that's also very tricky. Well, and I think it's still a fair debate because you know to your point the country's changed the world has changed and what goes on in massachusetts is going to influence what happens in california much 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 more than it ever had prior what i'm picking up from this conversation and what i've picked up in the past couple is that i think this this view of the court as anything but a political body and anything but a continuation of a debate over what the role of the government should be in our lives is erroneous. And there's there's a real interesting quote from your article I wanted to end on, and I'd love your comment on it, which is, if the court becomes more openly political, it'll be returning to the way it worked for more than 100 years only with vastly more power than it had before it wrapped itself in the mantle of nonpartisanship. Have we crossed that line yet, do you think? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Certainly members of the court don't want us to think that. Yes. That it, that has been the, you know, the the move in the last 6 months is for justices to say yeah. no, we're we're not partisan. I you know, I don't know the answer to that. I I think it's yeah. I think it's hard for us as a society to imagine a partisan court yeah. in the way that the 19th century court operated. Yeah. And in part, that is because we are so comfortable or maybe uncomfortable, but accepting of this two-party system where we assume mm. that there will be Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, in the 19th century, when the political parties changed, the court changed because, you know, you had members of the court who were appointed as Whigs and then the Whig Party doesn't exist anymore. So I think there was a lot more acceptance of it from that perspective. And I think, uh -huh. you know, 
when you have justices that come from the political branches, then it's much Mm -hmm. easier to talk about them as partisan actors. Mm -hmm. And in the 21st century, as long as we are, you know, assuming judges go through this sort of like set of feeder courts, then we're going to have a hard time thinking about them as political actors. So I think, you know, if the people at large become comfortable with that, then it may be, but I don't know that they will. (laughs) No, I don't think so either. And it's funny, this is, this is the third conversation I've had where the issue is really in some respect, political polarization. The issue isn't even really the court at all. It's really just the fact that our political environment has become so polarized. I mean, by these two static parties at this point, we take for granted that that they're the only two choices we have. And it's funny, you know, the genesis of this podcast was when I discovered that the best functioning democracies have electoral systems that allow for multipartisan or for more than two parties. And you're you're just proving my point here, Rachel. So I, I appreciate you doing that. I, I will just say one thing, yeah. which is, you know, there's sort of a, a standard interpretation of late 18th century, early 19th century that says all the delegates to Philadelphia and New York and then in Washington thought that partisanship was a bad thing. And yeah. so they tried to keep partisanship out of American society. And that's a useful tool to try to think about power. But in fact, partisanship had existed in the period before the Constitutional Convention, and it existed to a large degree after. It's just a matter of what that partisanship looks like. And if there is room for new parties and room for people to advocate more directly, and and our parties now are so top down in the 19th century, they were very much reflective of state and local actors who, you know, were the ones deciding who was going to be at a convention and who was nominated to the local convention and then the state convention and then the federal conventions. And those conventions, like anything could happen. (laughs) So I think a lot of it has to do with the way partisanship works and who's controlling that partisanship. I am ending it right there, Rachel. That is where the episode ends because that's perfect. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving a review and letting everyone know how great this podcast is. You can also find a write-up of today's episode and a link to Rachel's op-ed in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just click the link that says episodes and ye shall find. Now, two big takeaways for me from this conversation. First, is that the court could afford to be more partisan back in the 1800s because its power was far lower than that of the current court. And it was really around the turn of the 20th century that the court's role switched from one of judicial review to one of judicial supremacy, where it was really the final arbiter of what was constitutional. That made nonpartisanship far more important. The second is the idea that today's partisanship is very top-down, whereas political parties of early America were led by the grassroots. As Rachel mentioned, parties were much more fluid and more policy-driven than the rigid identity politics of parties today. And while I admit that would be my preference, it also didn't stop the Civil War. So I guess the lesson here is sometimes you just got to crack a few eggs. 
As always, music, courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Uh, bye-bye. 